0: Today's scripture reading comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which is on page 8 of your bulletin. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said to them, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're beginning a, a new series as we walk through the core values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And one of them is uh, city embracing. What does it mean to embrace the city? Um, and we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah, the entire book, um, three, three messages on the book of Jonah. It's a, it's a brief book, but it's an important book. And it teaches us God's heart for the great cities of the world. It teaches us what it means to live as a Christian um, in a world among people who don't necessarily agree with all the things that you believe who don't necessarily behave the way you would want people to behave, who don't necessarily live the lifestyles or, or have the same values or share the same values as you. Um, why the city? The city is, is, is teeming with people. Um, these are images of God, God's image, teeming with God's image, um, but broken, broken. That's the city. And in today in our world today, 50% of the world's population actually lives in the big cities of the world. So it's a huge amount of, of uh, the world's uh, population that lives in cities. And here's Jonah. He's a prophet. He was called to preach to the Assyrians in their capital city. The Assyrians were the most powerful empire to date. And uh, he was called to preach in their capital city. Why? Because it was a strategic city. It was a city where all the people of the world were brought into either in exile or through capture. Um, much like the cities of the world today, uh, very, very diverse, um, ideologically diverse in in, in every way. And Jonah is called to go there to preach against the city of of Nineveh. But instead of heading east from where he was, east to Nineveh, Jonah heads west to Tarshish. Tarshish is most likely modern-day Spain. And he's the only prophet in the Bible that was not called to preach to his own people. He was the only prophet in the Bible not not called to preach to his own people. And and so he just hates the Ninevites, you know, because they terrorize his people. They eventually rout his own countrymen. And so he doesn't fear that the Ninevites won't respond when he preaches to them. He actually fears what will happen when they do respond. Will God be gracious to them? He knows that God's going to be gracious. And so this passage is going to teach us some amazing uh, truths How about the complexities of sin and the complexities of God's grace? We're going to learn three things today. Um, And we need to know these things because to live in a big city, you have to understand the complexities of sin and the complexities of grace. Three things the run, the rain, the rescue. Running from the call, that's the complexities of sin. Crying out in the rain, that's going to teach us, we uh, uh cry the storm. That's going to teach us about the roots of sin, the deeper complexities of sin, um, and the rescue, the rescue in the sea. It's going to teach us about the complexities of grace, the complexities of salvation. So first, the run. Sin, it's more than just a series of bad acts. It's more than it's a series of things that we commit. How do we know that? In verse 1, um, God calls the Assyrians wicked. He says they're wicked, a wicked people. In verse 5, these sailors, they're actually pagan sailors. Why do we know that? Because they say, call out to all of your gods. Call out to your gods. Maybe one of them will hear us. But who's who's the sinner in this text? Who's the sinner that the author is actually focusing on in this text? It's Jonah. Jonah. Jonah's the one that's running. Jonah's the one that's on the run. Jonah's a prophet. He's a man of God. He's called by God. And yet he's the one that this text is focusing on. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Amittai uh, means um, dove. So he's the son of the dove. Doves were representations of peace. He's the son of peace, what we call the prince of peace. Here's Jonah, the prince of peace. And, And he's called, the word of the Lord comes to him. It's the Bible's technical way of saying that Jonah was a man of God. He was a prophet. So in other words, he's a moral, a religious leader. And uh, yet this entire book focuses on God confronting Jonah about his sinfulness. That's the entire book. You know, um, he's, and that should immediately tell us that sin is much more complex than, than just being bad, than just being wicked. It goes way deeper, it's much more subtle, it's way more complex, it's way more destructive than that. Verses 1 to 3, I'm just going to read this briefly. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Jobah and found a ship going to Tarshish. So we' paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Sin is much more than just a series of bad acts. Um, what do we see this? What do we see about this? There's three levels. Sin is visible. There's a visible component of sin. There's this existential. we're going to unpack that, this existential component of this sin. And it goes way, way deeper than that. Um, to become a, a rooted thing. There's a, there's a root to sin. So it begins on the inside and works its way out to the outside until it becomes visible and destructive to all. That's basically what we see about sin. First, the visible. Sin, flat out here, what do you see? It's disobedience. Jonah is told to go northeast from where he is to, to, uh, to uh, Nineveh, but instead he goes directly southwest, right? So he's called to go one direction. He goes completely opposite direction, heading towards Joppa uh, and and then on west into Tarshish. And what do you see? Sin is this visible, active, outwardly running from the Lord. We see that all the time. But it goes way deeper than that. It's got this existential layer. What do I mean by that? In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, whenever you see that the word of the Lord, throughout the Bible, you see this dynamic relationship between God and his word and God and his creation Genesis chapter 1 let there be light God says and behold what happens light just happens let there be light light just happens there's a dynamic relationship between God's word and God's creation you know and you see that throughout with the prophets The prophets say, here is what the Lord says. And then after they kind of declare what God says, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Lord has said. You always see between the bookmarks of what the Lord says, the pronunciation, the declaration. There's this resolution. It it ends. It says, okay, that's what the Lord says. But you don't see that here. God's word comes to Jonah. There's this intentionality there. In other words, you're supposed to do this. Because my word has creation power. What I say becomes God's word comes to Jonah, but you don't see the resolution. There's no resolution. Jonah, in his deliberate act of running from the Lord, we see here that sin is not just outward. It's not just a visible act of disobedience. It's this existential component. Jonah is avoiding what he was called to be. Jonah was avoiding what he was meant to be, what he was created to be. What God's intention for Jonah is what he's running from. You know, uh, and, and what does that lead to? It leads to brokenness. It leads to dissonance. Whenever we're, we're not just, It's not just a visible act. Whenever we're running from what we were intended to be, it ultimately leads to misery. It ultimately leads to dissonance. It ultimately leads to brokenness. Take a fine finely tuned violin you hear the violinist play it's beautiful but now you take that violin and you untune it and then you have that violinist play what happens? the violinist starts to play it's incredibly dissonant so he gets frustrated he just continues to play harder no matter how hard you play you hear the dissonance and this brokenness and it's a waste see that? That's what's going on here. No matter how, uh, you know, the misery and it affects the entire ecosystem, imagine this person now embedded within a symphony of instruments. It adds to the dissonance. It doesn't make it better. It actually takes away. There's dissonance. There's misery. It's, not, it's destructive, not creative. So when Jonah ran, he's not just disobeying God. He's not just disobeying God outwardly. He's rebelling against what he was created to be. there's nothing more sad nothing more dissonant there's nothing more miserable than that it's going to uh, move you towards guilt it's going to move you towards failure and he's saying this i'm going to create my own identity apart from you apart from your will it's exactly what happened in the garden in genesis chapter 1 to 3 you have adam adam had a calling god gave him several ordinances and he's subduing the earth. He's ruling the earth according to God's command. He's living in line uh, with, uh, with his calling. But he decided at one point, you know what? I don't need to trust in God. I don't need to do what he called me to do. I want to determine my own calling. I want to be what I want to be. And that is the essence of sin. Sin is telling the Creator who knows you and knows what you're intended to be. This is the way to, to safety. This is the way to security. You want security? Here's how you got to live it out. You want to be joyful? Here, I'm going to lead you towards joy. But the essence of sin is this. I don't trust that. I want to determine what is going to make me joyful. I want to determine what's going to make me happy. I'm meant for something else. Sin is telling the king who knows how to secure you, who knows how to give you abundance, who knows how to give you peace. Says, I don't need your peace. I don't need your provision. I don't need your security. I want to create my own security. I want to create my own peace. I want my own abundance. It's telling the Father, I don't need to live in your house anymore. I want my own house. I want to live my way. God doesn't call us to ruin our sense of peace or freedom or options or potential. Rather, he's calling us to show us the only way to find peace and joy and freedom and options and potential. Do you see that? Otherwise, there's dissonance. Otherwise, there's misery. And that's the deep-rooted layer. We're going to see the deep-rooted layer. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. It's the only time you see him rising. He rose to flee to Tarshish. But what does he do? He goes from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Jopa. Right? And then he pays a fare. He finds a ship. He pays a fare. He goes down into the ship. And then you go on, verse 5. And then the mariners, they're afraid because the storm hits. And they're hurling their cargo into the sea. And what what do you see? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And he lays down and falls asleep. You see down, 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 and then down. He's going to the deepest part. What is he doing? sin is not just outward it's not just this existential not rebelling against what you were created to be but rather what it is is um, it's separating yourself it's distancing yourself not just geographically I mean Jonah you see the geographical distance but why the down you know, it wasn't enough for him to go down to the Joppa. Then he goes down into a ship. Then he goes down into the inner parts of the ship. And then he lays down. He's trying to go as, further away, as far away from God as he possibly can to his ability. It's a relational distancing. That's what sin is. It's not just a physical distancing. It's a relational distancing. He's running. And the Hebrew, uh, uh, the Hebrew interpretation of verse 3, it goes like this. Jonah ran away. From the face of the Lord. It's not written there for poetic embellishment. Throughout the Bible, there's this pursuit to seek God's face. In your word of encouragement, what do you see printed there? You see um, the threefold blessing. And they all mean the same thing. It's actually written in poetry. Um, the first line is a statement The Lord bless you and keep you. But to be blessed and to be kept is what? To have his face shine upon you and for him to be gracious to you, to have his countenance upon you and to give you peace. They're all, they all mean the same thing. To be blessed by God is to see his face. Psalm 27, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. To seek his face is to be blessed, to have peace, to experience grace, to be intimate with God. We all understand what that means. What do we say when we're angry at somebody? Get out of my face. You know, it's not like you're saying physically, I want your face to be outside of my physical presence. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is a relational distancing. That's what we're saying. We say, talk to the hand. What are we saying? I don't want you to be in my face. I don't want you to be in my presence. I want to be relationally distant from you. So to run from the face of God means to run from intimacy with God. The physical distancing is just a representation of the the relational distancing, the spiritual distancing that Jonah wants. He doesn't want to just go west to be away from God, you know, physically. He heads to the furthest corner of the earth, Tarshish. That's where he's headed. And he goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down. And you see this corrosion of the soul, you know, You can't just apologize for the act. You know, I ran. That's not what sin is. It's more than that. It's so much deeper than that. There is this distancing. There is this crumbling. It starts with hidden bitterness. It starts with hidden jealousy. It starts with this hidden desire to control things. It starts with hidden drives that emanate and become visible in our lives. That's sin. And it takes over until it corrodes your soul, and you go down and you go down and you go down and you go down. down. The bad news is it it, it doesn't matter, you know, how good you are. You know why? Because look at Jonah. This is Jonah. This is the prophet called by God to preach, to be, to speak on God's behalf. And he is down, and he is down. Life eventually just blows up in our faces. That's the storm. We're gonna talk about that. That's the storm. Um, And it happens because sin is so subtle, it's so corrosive, it's so deep that by the time things become visible, life is already blown up in our faces. You know, we burst out in anger, we burst out in pride, we lose intimacy with people around us. You know, um, nobody wakes up and says, you know, I think I'm going to kill six million people today. Nobody does that. It starts with the hidden bitternesses, the deep-rooted slights. And then all of a sudden you start to gear and turn your life towards a group of people. And one day it becomes full-blown. That's, that's, that's what happens. That's sin. That's the running. We're running from the one person that we need to run towards. We're losing intimacy with the one person that we need to find true freedom and potential and joy. And that's what he promises, and yet we don't trust. And so we distance ourselves. That's Jonah point one now point two quicker point <clears throat> the rain crying out in the rain crying out in the storm how does god begin to bring jonah back how does he begin to bring jonah back and he starts out with this the storm the storm suffering it causes these sailors you know, poor sailors jonah happens to be on their boat and and you know this huge storm hits and they're just crying out to their gods and, uh, and it teaches us this. You know, most of us, we believe that the storm is punishment. When we suffer, we think it's punishment for disobeying God. That's how we view our storms. You know, for those of you like me, you know, one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie, the Sound of Music. You know, you have, uh, um, you know, the uh, Julie Andrews, right? Um, what does she sing? You know, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's the reason why she's experiencing. For here you are, standing here, loving me, right? That's what she says, right? Um, And we believe that. We believe if we do good things, God owes us. We must have done something good. So the corollary to that is what? If we do bad things then bad things must be had. The reason why we experience bad things in our lives is because we've been bad. We've lived a bad life. Um, And that's how we view storms. It's punishment for disobeying God. But if that were the case, think about it. If that were the case, Jonah would never have been called to preach to the Assyrians. Right off the bat, verse 1, God says, they are wicked. They are bad. They are disobedient people. But I want you to go and preach to them. I want you to preach to them. The entire book The object of grace is the wicked. The object of grace is the sinner in this book. The object here, the subject of confrontation, the subject of sin is who? It's Jonah, the religious person. The person who grew up in the church. The person who spoke on God's behalf and people revered him. How do we respond to the storms? There are three ways we generally respond to storms. The easiest way is we blame other people. We blame other people, and that leads to anger and self-destruction. You know, when we really need healing, we, you know, resorts to, you know, we resort to anger, self-destruction. The other thing we can do is we can blame ourselves. A lot of times we say, oh, why did I live that way? Now I'm being punished by God. And so we beat ourselves up, you know, and, and that leads to uh, self-destruction, That leads to self-pity, self-destruction. The other thing we tend to do is we tend to blame God. We get angry at God. You know, why is God doing this to me? I lived a good life. Why is he doing this to me? What does that result in? Anger and self-destruction or destruction. Um, We blame the world like that. That's what happens. The first three, they are not going to help you. They're only going to lead to alienation, greater distancing, greater isolation. We're just going to keep going down and down and down and down. Jonah ends up asleep. That's what it's going to lead to. He's increasing his distance from the Father when God is actually trying to decrease the distance between him and Jonah. That's what's happening. So look at the storm. He sends the storm. Verse 5, the sailors are all crying out to the gods, you know, save ourselves. We need to save ourselves. Cry out. They gave up everything that they had. They're throwing away all the unnecessary cargo to lighten the load, and they're crying out. Why? Because at the heart, the storms exist in our lives to reveal our weaknesses. They reveal that we were never in control in the first place. We thought we were in control, but we were never in control to begin with. That's what storms do. But the other thing that storms do, the purpose is to show how weak our lifeboats are. You know, all our lives, we prepare lifeboats in our lives to protect us from storms. If you live in the city, many of us have skillfully crafted their career Why? Because career is going to give you power, it's going to give you money, it could lead to relationships at will. And we craft these things. Why? Because each one of those things become lifeboats. If I have money, then I can weather storms until a greater storm arises that threatens to take away your money, threatens to take away your career threatens to take away if, if, you know, some of us, our relationships are the the lifeboat. If I just have this relationship, then life is going to be okay. I can be protected. I'm going to feel secure. And then a storm rises up to threaten to take away that relationship. If I just have perfect children, then I will feel good about myself. That's why we beat up our children. That's why we're so tough on our children. Because they have to be perfect because if they're not perfect, we don't feel good about ourselves. We feel like we failed as parents. We feel like we failed, you know, uh, my whole life I've been built up to raise these children and if they don't live right, oh, we're just devastated. That's the storm. Storms rise up in our lives to show us what we've clung to as our lifeboats. And you have to have a big lifeboat because if you don't have a lifeboat big enough to weather the storm, you're going to sink. You're going to go even further down it's going to lead to anger, disillusionment, self-destruction, distancing. You see that? You spend all your lives building up a reputation. You know, I want to be good. I want to have lots of friends. I need to be accepted, so I'm going to work hard for acceptance. You know, and you become a people pleaser until one day someone comes and tries to ruin your reputation, spreads a rumor about you. That one little rumor, what does it do? It just devastates you. It just ruins you. Why? Because I've worked for this. I deserve this. I deserve to be known. I deserve to be accepted. That's your lifeboat until the storm arises and takes that away. It threatens to take away from you. That's what happens. These things exist to show you we've always lived in a sea of uncertainty. There's never been a time in our lives where life has been certain. Not once. There are two things certain in life. Death and taxes, right? Those are the two certain things. Apart from that, we are living in a sea of uncertainty. It is uncontrollable. It is chaos. And these things, these lifeboats show us that, you know, gives us the semblance of peace. So we try to craft these huge lifeboats. They're a source of meaning. They're a source of significance. How we build our worth. And we spend a lifetime trying to avoid storms. And we never spend time processing the meaning of the storms in our lives. All of life, friends, all of life is a storm. What in your life right now is certain? What in your life right now is certain? Look at these sailors, the mariners. They're, They're not orthodox, but they know the sea. They know what it means to be in a storm. And it must have been a remarkable storm because the instant it hits, they become religious. Cry out to God's. These pagan sailors all of a sudden get very, very religious. Cry out, we need to be saved somehow. Many of us, um, you know, are in storms right now, and the storms reveal that our lifeboats fail. You've trusted in things that cannot hold; they just cannot hold in the storm. They're inadequate, and it's going to leave you insecure. It's going to leave you unstable, angry, and bitter. Sometimes betrayed. If you feel those things. That's the lifeboat. That thing, that reason, that's the lifeboat. And we turn to, a lot of us turn to religion. You know, these sailors, they get very religious. We turn to religion to add another layer of security in our lives. Because we convince ourselves that if I'm good, if I go to church, if I join a small group, if I obey the Ten Commandments, if I serve in leadership, then I'm going to be okay. It's another lifeboat. It's actually a very shallow lifeboat. Because all it takes is a storm to hit before you abandon these things. You realize these things I mean, do you think God is that petty? You know Is God that petty? Is he that cheap? Can he be that easily bought? The moment the storm hits, the sailors cry out, they try to recover. They work hard. They're trying so hard to make it right. Where's the help? Where's the help? Because Jonah, he's asleep. (laughs) He's down. Where's the rescue? Jonah's awakened from his sleep. The captain goes and says, you know, everyone's crying out to their gods. What are you doing? What are you doing? Cry out to your God. Maybe he'll help us. Up until this point, he's gone down to Jopa. He's gone down into his ship. He's gone down into the inner parts of the ship. He's lain down and now he's asleep. He is as distant as he could be, spiritually, relationally distant. The storm hits, he's woken up. What is the, what is the response? Verses seven to nine, the sailors, they ironically ask Jonah. First of all, they say, who are you? Who is this person? Because they, they casted lots. The lots fell on Jonah. Jonah must be the reason. They go to him. They, they gang up on him. They say, who are you? And it's a very interesting interchange. Verse 8, who are you? Jonah responds, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord God. That is an amazing admission that he says here. Here he is running from God, but the word that he uses to describe God is not a word that the sailors would have used. The sailors would use cry out to Adonai, cry out to Elohim, In other words, cry out to the one who made the world. Cry out to the supreme being. But Jonah says, I worship Yahweh. It's a very special word that God gave only to people who believe in him, only to people with whom he has an incredibly intimate relationship with. So here's Jonah so distant, but the moment the storm hits and they ask you, who are you and why are you here? He says, I worship the most intimate God that you could ever know. He knows as distant as he's been, God has not let him go. He knows his conscience is waking up. The storm is hit. He's processing the storm well. The storm is hit and he realizes this is about me. This is between me and God. And so, uh, you know, they say, who are you? What should we do? Verses 10 to 11, basically, what should we do? And Jonah responds in verse 12, here's what you do, pick me up. And throw me into the sea. In other words, I'm not going to let you die because of a wrath that I deserved. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. I deserve this. I'm going to die for you. Everything is going to be calm. If you throw me into the storm, the sea will grow calm, and you will be saved. And you know, it's interesting, because before Jonah went down away from God, but now he's going deeper, he's going to sink into the sea. But this time he's going towards God. He's woken up. He's surrendering his life. This kind of sinking, this kind of surrender is the only salvation. It's the only thing we need to do. The only prerequisite to experiencing grace. It's not, you can't try to earn it by living a better life because that's too, it's too petty. And like I said, that's just gonna save the outside. There's an existential, there's a deep-rooted layer. So it doesn't answer to that. You can't do it by just confessing. That's just outward. It might go maybe to the existential, but it's not going to go to the deeper layer. Jonah does it by surrender. The only prerequisite. It's the easy. It's the only, it's, you know. In other words, you can't do anything. You just need to let go. You just need to surrender to God. Surrender to His will. You know, um, you're basically saying this world is uncontrollable, and I've controlled it all my life. You are in control. I'm going to surrender to you. will. Verse 17, the fish. You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, it's a reminder that God has his eyes on Jonah. Down to the end, Jonah is thrown overboard. He deserved to die. He ran from the Lord physically, spiritually, distant from God. What does God do? He sends a fish to swallow Jonah up to redeem him and to save him. If you read verse, chapter 2, and we're not going to go into chapter 2, but it's an amazing prayer you see Jonah's prayer. He's being brought back into into God's arms. It's called repentance. He recognizes what God is doing for him. The fish is a reminder that God has saved him, not on the basis of his record, but in spite of his record. Not on the basis, you know, of, of his commitment to God, because his commitment wasn't too great, but based on God's commitment to Jonah. It's an amazing thing. It wasn't until Jonah lost himself completely, threw himself overboard into the sea, into the chaos, surrendered. That's when he realized what he was really worth to God. The fish just comes up and redeems him. Now he knows his worth. Now he knows that God will not let him go. Now he knows the value. For some reason, God has chosen to, chosen to value Jonah. The sailors got calm because Jonah faced the wrath of the sea. How do we find calm? In our storms. How do we find calm in the sea? We need to see that somebody greater than Jonah has come. Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, they're the religious people, they're the prophets of their day, right? They came to Jesus and they said, We want to see a miracle. And how does Jesus answer? In Matthew chapter 12, he answers, None will be given it. I'm not going to show you a miracle except. I will show you the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's what he says. What's the meaning? Jesus is the sign of the prophet Jonah. What does that mean? In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is on a boat. And he's on a boat with mariners, with sailors. And uh, there's disciples. And lo and behold, this big, furious storm hits them. So huge that the sailors on the boat, the disciples, are crying out to God. They're crying out to Jesus. They say, don't you care about us? Help us. Save us. These waves are crashing. They're sweeping over the boat, it says. Save us. We're going to drown, they say. What's Jesus doing? He's down and he's sleeping. Just like Jonah. And then he gets up from his nap So calm. Look at the peace of Christ in the storm. Look at the resilience of Jesus in the storm. Look at the the calm of Jesus in the storm. It doesn't say, what, what? Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. That's not what he does. That's not what he does. He gets up. The Bible says he gets up, and he rebukes the storm, and the storm grew calm. The sea grew calm again. Completely calm. The storm came up, and Jesus, like Jonah, he was sleeping. Jonah was sleeping to be distant from God. Jesus was sleeping because he's so close to God. He's so connected to God. He's so organically connected to God. So he's calm. He's at peace. Jonah goes down. He goes down, he goes down, and he goes down because he's running from God. But Jesus, he came down. In John chapter 1, it says, The word of God, the word became flesh. The word, the creation power of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, he came down. The word of God came down. Jesus, the embodiment of the word of God, came down. He condescended into the world, not to run away from God, but to obey God. Not to be distant from God, but because he's so close to God. Not to disobey or rebel against God, but to fulfill everything God wanted man to do. He lived a life that we should live. And he came not to bring judgment and wrath to sinners, but to absorb judgment and wrath for sinners. Jesus on the boat, he says, this isn't a storm. I'm going to show you a storm. Notice, he doesn't say, he doesn't say throw me overboard and the sea is going to go calm. That's not what he says. He just calms it with his word. He calms it with his word. Why? Because his word is power. He walks on water. He can calm the storm down, but he says this is a small storm. On the cross, there's another storm. The sky grew dark. It said that there was an earthquake. And it was so uh, crazy at that time that the tombs actually rolled away. These rocks actually rolled away. And the dead people came out. That's what it says. The storm was so strong that the holy temple curtain split in two from top to bottom and dropped to the ground. And in the midst of that storm, Jesus says, even this isn't a storm. There was, before the physical storm, there was a cosmic storm. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people say, cry out to your God. Tell him to get you down. Tell him you need to come down. Tell him to rescue you. He cries out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Jonah is running from God, and he says, "But I am the Lord's, Jesus so connected, so intimately connected to the Father. And yet he says, "I have been forsaken. I have been disconnected. I have been forgotten. I, in other words, I have been thrown overboard." I have been thrown into the great cosmic sea. And it's the waves have swept over me. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I seek your face. I don't have the blessing. Instead, I got the curse. I don't have your face. I have your back. He says, I don't have uh, your grace, I am facing your wrath. So that my people can experience, they can become the objects of grace. I have become the ultimate object of wrath. I've become disconnected so that we can become connected. Jesus became forsaken so that we could become accepted. Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. No matter where we are, no matter where we've been, no matter how far down we've gone, God, his presence, his face, his blessing will always be near. Do you see that? Do you get that? It's because Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. He threw himself overboard into the sea of God's wrath so that we can experience the calm. We get the calm. He gets the ultimate storm. And he was smitten by the storm. And if you believe that, that, it takes surrender to do that. To believe that story, to believe that truth, that narrative, that's the beginning of surrender. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Friends, don't just try to turn from sin you know okay tomorrow sorry tomorrow i make this resolution i will not do this anymore that's called religion and it doesn't work you're going to fail tomorrow i'm going to be just better to my kid tomorrow i'm going to be better to my to my friends you're going to fail you're going to fail miserably you're going to be swept away and you're going to it's going to take you further down because you're going to feel guilty because you failed you know it's not going to work you have to look to the greater jonah who faced the ultimate storm And and, and when you see the greater joy, when you see Jesus on the cross, turn to him, trust in him. Inevitably, you're you're taking your attention away from the other things, your other lifeboats, because they're going to make you fail. It's going to lead you to the dissonance, to the brokenness, to the misery. Turn to the cross and see the ultimate storm, one storm that you will never be able to endure. And when you see that Jesus suffered the ultimate storm for your sake, your other storms, there's a purpose. If God loved you so much that he would send Jesus to, brave the, to take the ultimate hit for you, you don't think that he has the power to take away the smaller storms in our lives? Then why does he let them happen? There's a reason. Let's process the storms in our lives. Wake up. Draw back to the Father. Your relationships will fail you. Your children will fail you. Trust me, I don't have children. I know your children will fail you. You know why? Because I'm someone else's child, and so are you. And you failed your parents just like I have. Your relationships will fail you. Your children will fail you. Your family family will fail you your job will never give you the security that you're looking for, will never give you the peace, will never give you the acceptance that you're really, really looking for. Your sex life, your desire for the opposite gender because you just need that relationship, it will never, ever heal you in the way that you need to be healed. Let the waves of God's love sweep over you. And the way you do that is you see the waves of God's wrath sweep over Christ. Why did he do that? He did it for you. He did it for me. Friends, will you trust in that? Trust in that this week. Faith is to say, you know what? I'm on a lifeboat and I need to abandon this because the storms keep getting rougher. You know, when I was in my 20s, when you're in your teens, what's the worst thing that you could experience? You know, you failed an exam, uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend broke up with you. That's a storm. That's a big storm you can't minimize that at that age that's a huge storm you know or you look you look at your mirror and you don't like the way you look that's a huge storm when you're in your 20s you know you have other storms now finding that job starting that career path the promotion the rat race big storm storm after storm then you get married and you have children and the storms they never go down they only get tougher they only rage stronger Pretty soon will you realize that there is no life raft on earth that you can create for yourself to bring you to safe harbor. Will you trust that? It takes faith. If you're saying, you know what, I see that. That is not something that you naturally trust. That's faith. It's working right now. God is working in your life. That's what that means. Now will you turn to Christ and see that he paid the ultimate storm for you. He suffered the ultimate storm. And he did it with gladness. That's what it says in the Bible. He did it with joy, out of love. There's the love you need. There's the acceptance you need. If you you know the Father, then you know me. If If you have the Father, then you have me. There's your inheritance. There's your wealth, a wealth that will never die. Will you trust in that? That's faith. That's repentance. Let's pray.